Okay, so if you were here last week, you know we just started a new sermon series. It is called The Road to the Cross. And the idea here is that as we move toward Good Friday and Easter, and we have those two big days where we really celebrate, we get, we're going to gather on Good Friday, we're going to have a Good Friday service, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together, we're going to focus on the cross and what Jesus did on the cross. And just on the third day, on the Easter Sunday, we're going to gather together again, and the mood is going to be completely different on that day. And instead of the somber presence of the cross, we're going to have the just joyful presence of the empty tomb, and we're going to be celebrating His resurrection. But as every church does that, every church focuses on the cross, every church focuses on the resurrection, sometimes there is a tendency, especially for people um, who are coming just for those special holiday services, there is a tendency for us to miss the whole picture of what's really going on here. I mean, most of us have heard that Jesus died on a cross. Most of us have heard that he rose again. But do we really understand the significance of it and how things were going down and what he was trying to do and how he went about it? It's so easy for us to sort of picture Jesus going to the cross and feel so bad and so sorry for him that he has to be this sacrifice and they've taken him and they've arrested him and chained him up and beaten him and taken him to the cross. And it can almost look to us, if we're not careful, as though Jesus is this poor, unwilling victim of what people are doing to him. And I want to make sure that doesn't happen. I want to make sure this year at Easter that we see exactly what's going on and we see exactly what God is doing and we see exactly how God is in charge of all that's happening. And so um, we began looking at Mark's gospel and we're looking at Mark's account of the way that things went down in the last few days, what is called Holy Week or Passion Week. From the time that Jesus came in on the back of the donkey to the time that uh, he was risen. What is it that went on between those big days of, the, of Palm Sunday and Good Friday? I don't want us to miss that. And so last week we began to just sort of set the stage and we, we saw that there was like 1,500 years of history leading up to this moment. We saw that that it goes all the way back to the original Passover when God through Moses led the people out of Egypt and he had everybody slaughter a lamb and the blood of the lamb was put above the doors and that when the angel of death came to execute judgment and punishment upon the Egyptians, that he saw the blood that was over the doors and when people were under the blood of the lamb, they were free from God's wrath and judgment. Instead, they were set free for a promised land. And they were, they were set free from their chains and their bondage. And we saw that for 1,500 years, the people of Israel had been hoping every year when they gathered and had that Passover meal, every year when they went through the Passover process of the Seder, and they asked the same questions and gave the same answers and ate the same meals and remembered the same stories and read the same scriptures, that they would, that they would be looking forward to this Messiah, this deliverer, this one who was going to come and set them free. And we watched as we saw that over the years, the nation of Israel struggled and struggled and struggled, and they continued to turn away from God and turn away from God. And now there had been hundreds of years in which God had been basically silent before John the Baptist comes on the scene. And he begins to say, hey, listen, I'm, I'm paving the way for the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, the Redeemer, the Passover Lamb. And when Jesus comes and John the Baptist is there baptizing, 
Jesus um, is walking toward him, and John looks up, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And people begin to scratch their head and go, Lamb of God, Lamb of God. The only lamb I know about is this Passover lamb that we have to slaughter that's a a symbol of God's redemption. Is this the lamb of God? Is this the redeemer? And and so all of a sudden people are paying attention and Jesus gets baptized and and the heavens open up and there's a visual sign that God is blessing as the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism. And there's an audible voice from heaven where God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the people go, oh my goodness, what is it about this guy? And his ministry begins, and he begins to go out and heal the sick, and he begins to to, um, unstop the ears of the deaf and open the eyes of the blind. He begins to cure leprosy. There are these stories about how he can control even nature, and he walks on water and calms the sea, and the rumors are just spreading about this guy. Could he be the one? And we get this going for three years until now we pick it up, And we see Jesus now, as we talked about last week, riding into Jerusalem at the beginning of the Passover week. And he is seated on the colt of a donkey, just as the prophet said the Messiah would come into Jerusalem. And the people see him and they say, the rumors must be true. The stories must be true. He's fulfilling the prophecy. He must be the one. And the people begin to shout and cheer, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's a buzz beginning around Jerusalem. And we said last week that for Passover week, the city, the ancient city of Jerusalem would swell far, far, far beyond its normal capacity. Up to two, three, maybe even four million people there for Passover week. People sleeping in the streets, every house filled with guests, just people everywhere, nowhere to walk. It's, if you could just picture uh, like a Manhattan sidewalk on a busy day and the traffic is backed up and the sidewalks are filled and the stores are filled, the skyscrapers are filled with people, that's how crowded it was in Jerusalem that week. And Jesus comes in and the, the party begins and in the triumphal entry, it happens. And then, of course, we see that as he comes in, he, he gets off the donkey, he walks into the temple, and the scripture says he looked around the temple. After all of this fuss, he looked around the temple and he left the city. He looked around the temple and did absolutely nothing, did no teaching, did no miracles, did nothing of note, looked around and then left the city. And then the scripture tells us, of course, that the next day, the Monday morning, as he was coming back into the city, he was hungry and he sees this fig tree that's in full leaf and he goes over to the fig tree hoping to get some breakfast and the fig tree has no figs. And he curses the fig tree and he says, may no one ever eat from you again. And everybody sort of stands back and goes, dude, are you having a bad morning? What's that about? And, and then we leave that story and he goes into town and he walks right into the temple, into the court of the Gentiles where they're selling the lambs and the doves for the sacrifices and where they're doing the money exchange so you could pay the temple tax. And there are people just carrying their wares through the middle of the temple, just treating it like it's not um, you know, special or holy or, or in any way sanctified. And Jesus just basically um, throws what looks to us like a fit. And he just begins to run around the temple court and he begins to overturn the tables and drive the money changers out and he makes a whip and he chases people out and pretty soon the place is empty and it's just a complete mess. And Jesus has done this all by himself and he has made a splash. 
He rides in on the donkey with all the people shouting Hosanna, comes back the next day, cleanses the temple, makes a complete mess of it, and a mockery of the priests who were there running this thing. And then he leaves again. And as they're coming in the next morning now, Tuesday morning, they're coming back into the city. And Peter looks and goes, oh, look at that fig tree. That's the one you cursed. And it's all shriveled up and just bent over and broken and dead. And it's never going to live again. And Jesus uses this opportunity to say, yeah, I'm trying to teach you something about faith. Life's about faith. It's not about religion. And when you build yourself up and look like you're in full leaf spiritually, but you're not bearing any fruit, God looks at that and says, it's a disaster. I don't want anything to do with that. And so he's cursed the fig tree. And he teaches his disciples, right? And it's still day three now. It's Tuesday morning. He's just explained about faith to Peter and about why the fig tree was cursed. And now he's walking back in to head into the temple. And as he's walking into the temple, I want you to to just picture what it looks like. They're just tens of thousands of people sleeping in the streets. And the sun is just coming up over the eastern horizon. And the sky is just changing from black to like midnight blue to a sapphire blue and to a, to a brighter blue in the east. And it's just coming up and people are beginning to wake up and stretch and the city is beginning to open up and people are opening up their doors and their shop windows and people are immediately beginning to talk. Can you believe what happened yesterday? I mean, I thought it was amazing on Sunday when he came in on the donkey and when he made that whole parade for him, and he didn't even say a word, and he just turned around and left. I thought, wow, that was weird. But then he came in yesterday. Did you hear what he did? No, I didn't hear. I wasn't here. What did he do? Oh, my gosh, he goes right into the temple and thrashes the joint. He just tears everything apart and runs the priest out of the temple. The priest, he chased him out of the temple. No way, he did not. Yes, he did. The whole city's talking about it. You can't believe what he did. He made a whole mockery of everything that they were saying was their religious system. And he said, it's not about that. It's about something else. And so now the religious leaders are both mad and scared. They're mad because he has embarrassed them, because he has interrupted their religious festival. And they are scared because they're saying, the people are starting to follow this guy. What is going to happen? We know what he thinks of us. What is going to happen if he gets a real following? And they're scared. The people are thinking he might be the Messiah, but everybody's talking. Everybody's a buzz about what's happening in the city this week. And so Jesus and his guys come walking into the temple courtyard again. Just imagine how on edge everybody is after what happened in the temple courtyard yesterday. And Jesus is coming, and I just want you to picture this. Jesus is not traveling by himself, right? It's Jesus and the 12, and as almost always was the case, a a significant entourage of people that were followers of Jesus. So just picture this, Jesus walking out front, and these guys behind him just like his boys, right? And, and, And there's going to be a confrontation, right? Because the religious leaders know he's coming, and they are gonna put a stop to this right now. I'll bet you anything They stayed up all night talking about this. We can't let this happen tomorrow. What are we going to do about this? Let's send our toughest guys. We'll send them out there and we will intimidate him. And we will come up with a way to make him stop what he's doing. So as he's walking this way with his entourage of guys toward the temple uh, court and coming into the court, coming toward him from inside the temple court 
is this group of guys who are the representatives of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. And they're coming, they're priests, they have on their fancy robes and their pointy hats and all the stuff that they wear to show everybody how much better they are than you. And they're all dressed up and ready to go, and they are walking with a purpose. And there's just a line of them. And here comes Jesus and his guys, and here come those guys. It's like, did you ever see um, West Side Story? It's like the Sharks and the Jets. And they are meeting on the basketball court. And there's this confrontation that is obviously about to go down. And then Jesus starts going like this. No, he didn't, he didn't do that. I don't think Jesus is in that picture. I think there's a guy named Jesus on the left, but I don't, it's a different Jesus. Anyways, so it's, I, that's the feel I want you to understand is happening in the temple courtyard. It's, it's like it's on. This is about to get really ugly, really fast. And these guys come to confront Jesus. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are well represented in what's called the Sanhedrin. Now, the Sanhedrin is the council. There's 72 members of the Sanhedrin. They are the ruling council of the Jews. And you have to understand, they're under Roman authority, right? But when the Romans took over a land in those days, they allowed you to maintain your government. They just put their government over yours. They put in a governor and some military people, and they taxed you. But other than that, they pretty much let you run your life the way that you wanted to run your life. And so they still had their ruling Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is made up of these basically three groups of priests. One is called the Pharisees. You've heard of the Pharisees, right? They're the guys that Jesus is always getting on their case because they're so religious, but they have nothing on the inside. And, and the Pharisees are respected, and they're priests, and some of the high priests come from the Pharisees. And then there's another group among the Sanhedrin called the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees are different. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are the two main ruling groups among the leaders of Israel, and they are about as alike as Republicans and Democrats, okay? They don't agree on anything. Their politics are not the same. Their theology is not the same, but they're all Jewish priests, and they're finding a way to sort of work together to, to lead the people, and they always are working against one another, but when they see Jesus rising to what they think is power, they say, we're going to have to come together, and we're going to have to work together to deal with this guy, and they'd already made a pact among them, as the scripture tells us, that they were going to kill him one way or another, and they began looking for a way to get rid of Jesus, and so some representatives of the Sanhedrin confront Jesus and his disciples there on the street. And we're going to pick it up in Matthew, uh, not Matthew, but Mark, Mark chapter 11. So Mark is the second book of the New Testament. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. And we're going to pick it up where we left off last week, which is verse 27. Mark eleven twenty-seven. it reads like this. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Okay? It's the sharks and the jets. Here's the confrontation. And they began saying to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now let's stop there. This is what they stayed up all night putting together. <laughs> they said, listen, let's get together. We're going to come up with a question that is going to stump him and put him in our hands. And here's the question they came up with, and it's actually pretty bright. They come up, they say, look, you've come in here. First of all, you came in on Sunday riding on a donkey. The people were practically worshiping you, and you let them do it. 
Then you come in here yesterday and you thrash our temple and make a mockery of our worship and the way that we do things. And I just want to know one thing. Who gave you the authority to do this? By whose authority? Who do you think you are? What are you doing? Where do you get the authority to do this? Now, you have to understand, this is a trick question. They, this is brilliant. They came up with it the night before. They said, this is the question we're going to ask him. By whose authority do you do these things? Why? Because he can't answer any good way. If he says, I do it by my own authority, I am the son of God, then they will immediately drag him out of the city and stone him to death for blasphemy. Because there's only one God. They've been taught this from the beginning. And anyone who claims to be God must be put to death immediately. You didn't even have to have a trial. If there was two or three witnesses that heard him claim to be God, all you do is drag him out of the city and stone him and leave his body out there for the jackals to eat. So he can't say that. But what if he says, um, I don't really have the authority to do this. I, I don't, I, it's just me. I'm just a rabbi from Galilee. Well, they say, well, guess what? You came in and broke our laws yesterday. You ransacked our temple and you're under arrest. And they take him and they throw him in a dungeon and they get rid of him forever and they quietly put him to death. So if he says he has authority, he's toast. If he says, I don't have authority, he's toast. And they've set him up. It's a trap, okay? Look what it says as we continue reading. Um, Jesus said to them, verse 29, I will ask you one question and you answer me and then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Okay, so Jesus' response is, listen, I am going to play your game. You came up to me and you basically said, look, we're in charge. You do what we say. We're going to ask you a question. You answer it. Jesus says, you know what? I'll answer your question, but I'm going to play the game with you. I'm going to ask you a question. And after you answer my question, I'll answer your question. And so Jesus, after being asked, who do you think you are? responds like this. He says, let me ask you a question. Verse 30, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. The baptism of John, remember John the Baptist? John the Baptist who baptized Jesus. John the Baptist who came as this, as this prophet, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make way the, the path for the Lord. Remember him? He was a hero to these people. They loved him. And you know what just happened to him recently, right before this? He had his head chopped off. The king had his head removed. So John is dead, and John has become a martyr. And everyone there respected John. They all loved John. They all thought John was from God. And John, by the way, was the one who said, Jesus is the Messiah. So Jesus asked him a question, and all he's doing is setting him up. He says, the baptism of John, is it from God or of men? And the one guy steps up and begins to answer, and the other guy puts his hand over his mouth and goes, you know what, give us just a minute, we're going to confer. And they go over here, and they huddle, and they talk about it, and they come back, and they say, we have an answer to your question. Here's our answer. We don't know. <laughs> that's, that's what they said. Look at verse... Um, Verse 31, they began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from men? They were afraid, the people for, uh, afraid of the people for everyone considered John to have been a real prophet. Answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. And look what Jesus says. 
And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. See what just happened? The confrontation takes place, right? The one guy takes the lead and he says, you listen to me. I'm in charge here. I'm going to ask a question and you answer it. Jesus' response is, no, you listen to me. I'll ask you a question and you answer it. And if you do, I'll answer your question. And they come back and go, oh, we can't answer. And he goes, well, then I guess I don't need to answer either. And it's the end of the confrontation. And those guys go, oh. And we stayed up all night working on this question. He didn't even give an answer. And so they go back off and they start talking about what are we going to do? What are we going to do? But, but while that's happening, Jesus now has an opportunity to teach. And I want you to look. Chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. Now, when it says he began to speak to them, who is them? Everybody. The place is packed, right? There's people everywhere. I guarantee you, it's Jesus, his disciples, and his guys, right? And it's the Sanhedrin and the guys who came with them. And it's the giant crowd of people who got word that Jesus and his guys are about to brawl with the Sanhedrin and, and their guys. And when the crowd forms, Jesus says, okay, everybody, listen up. I'm going to teach you something. And they all get quiet and they want to hear what he has to say. And here's what he has to say. Chapter 12 verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. He began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a vat under it, a vat under the wine press and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, this is a very, very simple story. This is a story they would have understood. Uh, this was very common in their days, right? Wine was the big, uh, grapes were the big crop of the area. Grapes, figs, olives, that's the kind of thing that you grew there. And so there were many vineyards around that area, still are today. And Jesus says, let me tell you how this works. There was this rich guy, this, this master, and he owned this land, and so he built this vineyard. And I mean, he built it perfect. It had the tower, it had the wine press, it had the... the the trough dug underneath the, the wine press. I mean, it was, all of the vineyards were planted. It was ready to go. And what he did was normal in those days. The rich guy didn't go out and raise the grapes. What did he do? He hired tenant farmers, and he said, in exchange for your labor, you can live on the land, and you can keep a small percentage of the grapes for yourself, and then the rest will be your rent, and it will go to me. So you raise the grapes, You'll be tenant farmers. I'm going to go over on a journey. And when, the, when it's time for the grapes um, and there's wine um, to, to give out, I'll, I'll come back and collect. Okay? Verse 2. At the harvest time, he sent a slave to the vine growers. In addition, uh, in order to receive some of the produce of the vineyard from the vine growers, they took him, the slave, and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another slave, and they wounded him in the head, treated him shamefully. And he sent another one, and that one they killed. And so with many others, beating some and killing others. So the guy keeps sending higher-ranking leaders in his organization, saying, hey, guys, you need to make this right. You, you know, you owe your rent. You need to make this right. And they keep beating them and killing them. They send, he sends these slaves, and they come back in body bags. And what are they doing? They're basically saying, look, dude, 
this is our vineyard now. We don't, we don't work for you. We're going to do this our way. And they're beating the messengers, okay? Now, do you see where this parable is going? He's making a point, right? Look at uh, verse 6. He had one more to send, a beloved son. He sent him last of all to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those vine growers said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. Now, sometimes when Jesus told parables, he left people just scratching their heads going, what is he talking about? I have no idea. This guy is so strange. You ask him a direct question and he tells you a story about like, I don't know, a a pearl or something. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? I never understand what he's saying. And the people would go away scratching their heads. Some of the parables were like that and he had to explain them to a small group of people so they would understand. But then other than the parables were so obvious, you'd have to be a complete idiot to not know what he's talking about. This is one of those. These guys, the priests, are standing right there. And he's saying, hey, you know, there's this rich guy, and he built this vineyard, and he had these guys who were supposed to mine the vineyard, and they were supposed to give the the produce to the master, but they didn't. And so he sent them messengers to say, hey, you guys need to straighten up, and they killed the messengers. And he finally sent his son, and you know what they did to the son? They killed him too. And when they did that, now the wrath of the master was going to be poured out upon them. Man, they knew exactly what he was talking about. They knew exactly what he was talking about. He was identifying them as the guilty parties. And he knew Friday was coming, right? And he knew that he was going to hang on a cross just two days from now. Just, just less, than, less than 36 hours, he'd be hanging on a cross. And he knew that they were going to be the ones who put him there. Do you suppose that when Friday came... And these guys gathered with the crowds outside, and Pilate was saying, what do you think we should do with this guy? We've already beaten him. Shouldn't we just let him go? And these guys began to chant, crucify, crucify, crucify. Do you think when they began to shout crucify that they remembered this parable? That he spoke to them that day, and he said, hey, guess what? You're going to even kill the son. And they're condemned by the, by the parable. In fact, it says... Um, Keep going, verse uh, 10. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to seize him, and yet they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke the parable against them. And so they left him and went away. These guys came in that morning saying, We are going to put him in his place. If we're lucky, by 10 o'clock this morning, he'll be dead. He'll at least be in prison. Instead, he has called them out, embarrassed them, humiliated them, and said, you are the builders who rejected the chief cornerstone. You. And the people went, ooh. And they watched to see what these guys would do. And it said they became angry. They knew who he was talking about. And then they left. Go back, gather the troops, figure out plan B. And plan B, by the way, is going to unfold over the next couple of days, and we're going to see it happen. It involves 
30 pieces of silver and guys with clubs and torches in a garden. It's coming. And Jesus is almost pushing it, isn't he? He's pushing their buttons. He's saying, I know you guys think that you're in charge, and you come to me and you ask me this question, by what authority do you do these things? You ask me, who do I think I am? I'll tell you who I think I am. I think I am the owner's son. That's who I am. I come with authority. You answer to me, I don't answer to you. I am in charge of these proceedings. You are not in charge of these proceedings. And you know what? As you watch this unfold, and we know where it goes from here, right? And as you watch Jesus being arrested, and as you watch him being beaten, and as you watch him being hammered to the cross, even as he's hanging on the cross, and they're shouting at him and mocking him, and they're saying, if you're so great, come down from the cross. Jesus says, I will not come down from the cross because I'm so great. I'm in charge of this situation. He's never out of control the whole time. Everything he does, he decided to do from before the foundation of the world. Listen, it's going to look as the story unfolds like these guys took Jesus' life from him. That's not what happened. He said, no one takes away my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus didn't die on a cross because there were guys who were tougher than him, smarter than him, and more powerful than him. He died on the cross because his love for you is so profound that he couldn't do anything else. Jesus was in charge. And don't miss that. See, these guys understand where this parable is going. He's saying, you know what? You guys, you're the ones who are working this vineyard. God has given this to you. This doesn't belong to you. And, And by the way... These guys are so offended because he would dare say, this is uh, my vineyard and, and you owe me. We need to think about this today. Let's forget about 2,000 years ago for a minute and let's just think about our own lives today and ask ourselves, where did we get our lives? Who gave us our lives? Why do we exist today? To whom do we belong? See, everything in us says, I belong to me, and nobody's going to tell me what to do. I belong to me, and I'm going to live my life for my purposes. And God says, no, 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 you're just a tenant farmer of your life. You don't belong to you. You've been bought with a price. You belong to me. And what does he want from us? Does he want grapes? No. Romans 12.1 tells us what he wants. It says that we're to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice. He wants you. That's what he wants. And he has every right to demand it. And in verse 9, he says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? What would we expect him to do? We would expect him to unleash his wrath. Jesus is holding these guys accountable. He says, I want you to know exactly what you're doing and exactly who it is you're doing it to. And I want there to be no excuses. They're saying to Jesus, who do you think you are? And Jesus is answering their question, I know who I am. I'm the Son of God. I've been sent by my Father after all these attempts of sending messengers to call you to repentance and say, lay down your life and live for me. You've rejected every other messenger, so now my Father has sent me his Son. I know very well who I am. And he looks him in the eye, so to speak. And he says, who do you think you are? And guys, it's a profound question for us to think about. As we 
struggle with God for control over our lives. Who do you think you are? He says, I'll tell you who you are. You're the builders who rejected the cornerstone. You're the tenant farmers who tried to take the place for yourself. That's who you are. And this is not just an ancient story. This is the same thing that's going on today. Jesus speaks throughout the ages, and he calls us to give ourselves to him. And so many people respond to that calling by saying, who does he think he is? He's going to get up in my business? Jesus is going to tell me how to live my life? I don't think so. I don't work for him. I work for me. And how dare he start to tell me what I should do with my money? Who does he think he is? How dare this Jesus sort of jump into my life and start insisting that I do things the way he wants me to do them? Who does Jesus think he is? How does Jesus think he is when he looks at me and says, listen, you know, even the, even the most intimate things of you belong to me. You know, people are freaking out today because the word of God has standards for sexual behavior. They're just freaking out. Who do you think you are to tell me about my sexuality? And, and they're aiming that not so much at God, but at Christians, right? Who do you think you are? This is so important, guys. This is so important, whether it's this subject or anything else, when we're sharing with people, to not be the ones who are the lawmaker and judge. God's word tells us that we belong to God and he has standards for our lives. How dare he stick his nose in the most intimate things of my life? Who does he think he is? My vineyard is for me and the prophets are for me. And I will run it the way I want to run it, and I will drink the wine. And God says, oh, really? See, guys, there's a God who planted the vineyard called your life. The one who's caused all the growth, made it possible for you to thrive, made it possible for you to enjoy life. But make no mistake, your vineyard is not really yours. It's just yours to tend for now. And whether you like it or not, we all answer to him. And guys, you should like it because he's good, isn't he? Isn't he merciful? Isn't he gracious? Isn't he kind? Isn't he loving? Isn't he giving? This is the one to whom we owe our allegiance. Oh, that's so hard. He's so good to us. We are so blessed to have a God who loves us like that. And then we say, I'm going to run my own life? Really? We say to Jesus, who do you think you are sticking your business, sticking your nose in my business? Really? He says, I know who I am. I'm the son of the master. And I came to say that you need to give submission to my father. You can reject me, but if you do, you're going to come under the wrath of my father. And that's what those guys were thinking about as they saw Jesus going to the cross. Boy, I hope he's not right. I hope he's not right. I hope he's not right. Who does Jesus think he is? He thinks he's God. And he thinks he's worthy of our whole lives. And so the ball comes back into our court now. And then we have to sort of look in the mirror, and we have to answer two questions. The first Jesus throws out to us, and he says, who do you think I am? Who do you think I am? Do you think I'm a good luck charm? Do you think I'm a genie in a bottle? Do you think I'm a friend? Do you think I'm somebody who you could put on a shelf and then call on whenever you need me and I'll just do your bidding? Am I your servant? Who do you think I am? And then he looks at us and he asks us this pointed question. He says, who do you think you are? 
standing in the presence of the one true God, will we really keep insisting that we're going to be in charge of our own vineyard? He sent all these messengers, and the messengers came, but they failed to honor them because they failed to honor the one who sent them. And he finally sent his son, and they failed to honor him too. Jesus knew the cross was only a couple of days away. And he's speaking words of conviction to them. It's as though Jesus has ridden into town, made a huge splash, overturned the tables, and now he's come back, and in a face-to-face confrontation, he has said, you guys have no choice. You have to deal with me right now. It's either my father or it's you. Who's it going to be? And they made their decision. And the cross is looming in the distance. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And he knows exactly what the results are going to be. And because he loves you, he keeps doing it. Because he loves his father, he keeps doing it. He's pushing the issue. And Good Friday's coming. And he's speaking words of conviction. So that when they saw what they will do, they would know that they are without excuse. Who does he think he is? He thinks he is the Son of God who lays down his life for us. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He's the one who spoke a word and all of the universe leapt into creation obediently to him. He's the King of kings, and He is the Lord of lords, and He is not a genie in a bottle, and we don't run His life. He loves us, and He goes to the cross to make that point. But He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. It will not be the other way around. Who do you think He is? And who do you think you are? Are we really going to reject the Son of God or are we going to bow down and worship at His nail-pierced feet? I can't speak for you, but I know what I'm going to do. Let's pray.